Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Uh, if you are just joining us today or visiting uh, with us, um, we have been in a fall series on the book of Colossians. Uh, we are literally halfway through. We've got a couple more chapters left as we begin chapter 3 today. Uh, Paul uh, writes this book, uh, writes this letter from prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial in Rome. And he writes this small little power-packed letter uh, to a small church in Asia Minor. And he's writing this book. He's very clear about this all throughout, beginning, middle, and end. He says, I'm writing this book to you to help you grow and to help you grow up and to mature you in this mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed to you in Jesus You're a baby church with baby believers and new converts, and I'm writing to you to not only fend off all the other gospels you might want to believe, all the other uh, religions that you might want to to go after or to merge with, with this new faith, but I'm here to keep the mystery of the gospel pure and simple, that Jesus Christ is your life. And in that understanding, in that growing up and, and, and maturing in that reality, Paul writes every line of this letter. And in today's passage, uh, in just a few short verses, uh, Paul is grabbing our attention to, uh, to have us look at our attention. He's bringing attention to our attention, the things that we pay attention to, what we focus on, what we ruminate on. Paul knew that in his day, as well as every day, every generation since the first century, that there is a war for our attention as human beings. This week I was studying this passage knowing that Paul is attempting to reorient our our attention. And even in a week when it was very fresh on my mind that this was a call to, to have my attention in the right place, I can't tell you how aware I was that the war for my attention, the war for our attention, is something that never takes a day off. And Paul's not talking about uh, the war to pay attention. We're all masters of paying attention. What Paul is, is laboring for is the war of what you're paying attention to. That none of us actually have an attention problem. And I don't mean that medically, that if you're on medicine, that's great for that. What I mean is we're all great at paying attention to things. That we all, we all can binge Netflix shows and, and scroll through social media and we can all get lost in something and we can all ruminate on something and think about something and rethink about something and overthink about something and then talk to other people about it to help them think about the same thing. We have no problem paying attention to something. And Paul is not saying you don't know how to pay attention. He's saying here, I'm trying to get you to understand, do you know the power and the impact of what you pay attention to? Do you know what that means for your life and how it affects you? Paul begins with this little, little powerful word in the opening sentence. He starts this whole section, starts this chapter off with a very, very powerful word, since. Verse 1, he's saying, since what I'm about to tell you is true, there are some implications for that. Since these next few words are real and true and trustworthy, there are going to be some natural implications that follow from what I'm about to tell you. And this is what he tells them. Since you have been raised with Christ. 
That's in reference to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ incarnated and then suffered and was crucified and then he was resurrected. And that resurrection power, Paul says, you've been raised with him. And we could talk for months about the implications of what it means that you've been raised with Christ. But Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it. Here's all that he wants us to know. Since you've been raised with Christ, translation, since you have the power of the resurrection inside of you, since the powers of death and darkness and evil couldn't hold Christ down, he had resurrection power, that's now your power. And since that's true, let me tell you what should follow. Since everything I've said in the first two chapters is true, let me tell you the natural implication, the natural imperatives, the natural commands as to what should follow. Here's the natural and logical imperative from Paul. He says in the second half of verse 1 and then in verse 2, he says this, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Here's the imperative from Paul. Set your heart and your mind on things above. Those are the commands. Those are the imperatives. Set your heart and mind on things above. If you were listening last week or if you were here last week, uh, we talked about what Paul is writing at the end of chapter 2, where he basically says, don't let anybody, uh, religious or irreligious, don't let anybody add to the gospel for you. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And when you start adding other dogmas and other laws to the gospel, you actually end up taking away from it. Don't let anybody add to the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, is what Paul essentially says at the end of chapter 2. And now, Paul's giving commands. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and now he's giving some imperative statements in light of that. Did Paul just add to the gospel? Don't let anyone add to the gospel except me, and I'm going to tell you, you have, to, you have to set your hearts and minds on Christ if you really want to be free. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing, where he's leading us is, yes, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing is your freedom. Don't let anyone add other dogma to the gospel but now Paul wants to say, hey, that's true. That's real for you. Now let me show you how you're going to walk in that newfound reality, in that newfound freedom. That's the rest of the book of Colossians. I'm going to show you. It's what the title of this chapter is called, Putting on the New Self. This is a new reality for you. You really are free in Christ. Now, as your older brother in the faith, Paul is saying, let me tell you how to walk in that newfound freedom. Let me tell you how to practice it and really experience it. We get this. This is, this is not rocket science, or someone who I heard recently uh, said this is not rocket surgery, uh, which is the wrong way to say that phrase. Uh, this, is, this is not rocket science. This is the, the, the idea that there are realities, there are things that are true, and then there are practices that help us experience that new reality. So I'm married. A couple weeks ago was my anniversary, and I'm an incredible husband. And so I, I bought flowers and I wrote a note and uh, had dinner reservations and we got rooftop drinks that night and it was amazing. But think about the experience of we were celebrating our anniversary. We were celebrating the, the, the reality of our marriage. We were practicing it. We were practicing the reality of our marriage. Is what you do. You, you experience this reality. Think about that reality of planning a whole date night for anniversary versus doing nothing. The experience of our marriage would be very different if I never practiced the reality of our marriage. 
Think about doing nothing on your, on your anniversary. Would you still be married? Maybe. Uh, but think about doing nothing on your anniversary. Would that, would that action make you not married? No. Would you be experiencing the joy of that relationship? No. And so the reality is you're married. The reality is you're free in Christ. The reality is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so what Paul is saying is, let me show you some practices that will help you experience the reality of that freedom. The practices don't change the reality, but they are helpful practices to experience the new reality. And here's Paul's practices, here's Paul's commands in order to experience the freedom they have in Christ. Here's what he says, set your heart and your mind on things above. In order that you would experience what it means to be free in Christ. If you don't set your mind on things above, if you set your mind on earthly things, will you still be free? Yes. Because the practices can't change the reality. But if you don't practice those things, if you set your, earth, your mind and heart on earthly things, will you know the joy of that freedom? Probably not. This is what Paul's doing. He's not adding to the gospel. He's giving us practices. He's giving us an imperative to say, do you want to know and experience how truly free you are? Set your heart and your mind on things above. That is how Paul is drawing attention to our attention. Do you know what you are paying attention to? Do you know who you're paying attention to? Do you know what circumstances in your life, what storylines that are going on, what things that you're facing, do you know what you're paying attention to from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep? When Paul says here, set your hearts and your minds, that's his way of saying, pay attention to this. And the truth is, you and I are never not paying attention to something. You and I are never not setting our hearts and our minds on something. We don't exist in a vacuum. You are a living, breathing human being. You are setting your hearts and your minds on something all the time. Something has your attention. That Greek word, the root word there in the original Greek, where he says set your hearts on, it's actually just one word in Greek. It's the Greek word zeteo. It means to seek out. It means to look intently for something. It means to desire something. Like what is it that Paul's trying to get at where he says, ziteo, things that are above. Desire it. Let it grab your attention and ruminate in your mind. Fix your attention on this. Get down into the, 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 the caverns of your soul where desire lives. What Paul chose to use, that word ziteo, he's saying that, does, that doesn't just include like, uh, the, the, the kinds of shows you watch or the kinds of books you read. Here's what he's talking about. Zeteo includes values and loves and desires. He's saying, I'm trying to get way deep in there. I'm trying to go all the way down to where the seat of your desire is into your heart and say, turn your desire's attention to things above. And you know this, or at least I expect you know this, that the desire of your heart drives everything you do. The desire of your heart di dictates what you pay attention to. To set your heart and your minds on things is driven by what you desire. Your desire drives your attention. What you desire drives what you pay attention to. And and there's a reciprocal relationship between this. Not only what I desire, does that dictate what I pay attention to? Do you know the power of what you pay attention to informs and reforms and reorders your desires? 
The things you spend time doing will reorder the things that you desire. And the things that you desire will inform the things that you do. Author James K. Smith has written extensively and helpfully about this. Very helpful book, You Are What You Love. Subtitle, The Spiritual Power of Habit. He's also written a a trilogy on this, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and Awaiting the King. Desiring the Kingdom and You Are What You Love. Very helpful, very, very uh, clear in, in this reality of the reciprocal nature. He opens up a lot about this. The idea that my desires drive my practices. And what I practice ends up reforming and resetting what I desire. They are in relationship and you cannot change that. That you and I build our lives around how we spend our hours and our days and our weeks. Our practices, the things we spend our life doing. He calls them the liturgies of your life. And the liturgies of your life will inform the things that you love. And the things that you love will inform the liturgies of your life. There is a reciprocal relationship between the two. You and I pay attention to things. And that paying attention is driven by what we desire. And the things that we pay attention to reshape our desires. They are in reciprocal relationship. So if you love the experience of rich food, if you love the experience of going out to eat, if that's a desire, if you enjoy the experience of the, of the richest of foods, I would imagine that you've practiced that recently. Because you love it, you do it. And the more you do it, if it's a good experience, you, you end up loving it more. They're in relationship. Do you love live music? If you love live music, I would imagine because you love it, you've been to a concert or two. And then the more you go to good concerts, the more you love live music. These are simple. If you love leisure, if you love rest, I would imagine you spent time or money recently going on vacation or doing things that bring you leisure and rest. And guess what happens when you're on vacation? Guess what you want to do? Go on a lot more. That, that's, the, that's the nature of this, this. The things that I practice are driven by what I love. And the things that I practice drive and inform and reform the things that I love. Our loves and our desires drive our liturgies, drive our attention, and our liturgies, our attention, informs and shapes our loves and desires. Paul is drawing attention to our attention. Do you know what you're paying attention to? Because it will let me know and let you know what you love, and it's shaping what you love. It's shaping where your affections are. Where is your attention being spent? Because it will reveal a whole bunch about you and has a whole bunch of power over you. So here's some questions to ask yourself if you don't know the answer to that question. What am I paying attention to? Here's some helpful ways to start. Where do you spend your money? Because where you spend your money, I promise you, you effortlessly spend money on the things that you love. Where do you spend your time? Or how about this one? When it's silent, falling asleep, on your way to work, when it's painfully quiet, where does your mind wander? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Here's a simple and daunting one. What are you afraid of? Because whatever you're afraid of reveals what you love and what you worship. On the other side of your fear is your heart's affections. Or complete uh, one of these two sentences and you will know what has your attention. My life would be okay if, or how the other side of that, the darker side of that is, my life wouldn't be okay, wouldn't be worth living if. However you answer any of those questions or fill in those sentences is what has your attention. 
It is what, in Paul's words, you have set your heart and your mind on, whether you realize it or not. It is driving the liturgies of your life. You are building your life around the answers to those questions. And Paul would probably hear any of our answers that we just answered internally. I'm going to throw all of your answers up on the screen right now. Uh, Paul would see or hear our answers to those questions, and he would probably say, stop setting your heart and your mind on earthly things. Maybe one of you was all heavenly desires and heavenly uh, attention spans. But this is why he's calling attention to our attention. Do you realize what you are paying attention to? Do you know the liturgies of your life? Do you know where you spend your time and your money and how that is being driven by your desire and your affections? Do you know the things that have your attention? And do you know what you have set your heart and your mind on? And then he wants to lead us somewhere. He's not just calling out our attention. He's saying, I want to show you what I want you to pay attention to. He says it twice, which is always a good indicator that this is part of the main point that he's trying to make. Repetition, biblically, drives us to the main point, usually. Here's what he says. He says it twice. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. And then he goes straight into set your minds on things above. So what in the world is this things above language? Well, actually, not surprisingly, he tells us. He tells us exactly where our attention is supposed to be. He says in verse 1, set your hearts on things above, meaning what comes right after this, he's about to tell you what things above is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What are the things above? It's the place where Christ is seated in authority. Set your mind, set your heart on things above, on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Every scholar virtually agrees that Paul is referencing Psalm 110 from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is, is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that talks about the king over God's people, the king whom God has set at his right hand. And the implication there is the king that God has set up over his people is a king that's in a position of power and rule and authority. And it goes on and on to talk about all the victory that that king will experience and all the honor and majesty and, and, and authority and power and dominion that that king will have. And at the time in Israel when David wrote it, Many people thought and just assumed it was David talking about himself. David was the king over God's people. And so people just thought, oh, David's talking about the power and the authority and the rule and the victory he's going to have and he has because he's been placed over God's people as their king and he's seated at God's right hand. But the more you study it and hear it, the reader begins to realize that this psalm absolutely cannot be talking about a mere mortal. It cannot be talking about a human ruler. David died. And so his rule didn't uh, continue on forevermore. This Psalm 110 is not talking about David. Because the description of the kind of rule and the kind of authority and the kind of victory that the king that is seated at the right hand of God will have is so over the top that you can't read it and still think, oh, that's clearly talking about David. This is eternal throne room, endless power that this psalm says that the king over God's people will have. And the victory and the authority and the dominance and the dominion that he will have cannot be applied, applied to David because David's dead. And so the New Testament clears up this confusion. You guys all thought that Psalm 10, 110 was talking about David. It's not. 
Psalm 10, 110 wasn't talking about David, it was talking about Jesus. In fact, the New Testament is so adamant that Psalm 110, Paul being one of the writers that wants us to know that in this verse, the New Testament authors are so adamant that Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus and not talking about King David, that it is the most referenced passage in the entire New Testament. It's the, it's the most quoted and the most alluded to and the most referred to Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. Over 25 times in the New Testament, Psalm 110 is plucked out and applied to Jesus. You guys thought it was talking about David. It's not talking about David. It's talking about Jesus. And in the ancient Near East context that Psalm 10 was written in, we are then to understand Jesus is the king who is seated at the right hand of God. And to be seated in the throne room at the right hand of the ruler and the, and the authority and the creator God, to be seated at his right hand is full of symbolism. Not only is he actually seated at the right hand, it means something about that position. That seat comes with a lot of descriptions. It means it's a symbol of power, it's a symbol of protection, it's a symbol of victory, it's a symbol of his works, it's a symbol of his justice and his judgment. It's also a symbol of the utter defeat of all of God's enemies. It's a symbol that means, do you realize that kings don't sit down on their throne room while they're at war? He's seated because he's at peace. He's seated because the war is over. Here's what Psalm 110 goes on to say about the one who's seated at God's right hand. It's, it's kind of a slap in the face to all of God's enemies, all the forces of darkness and evil and death that would oppose God and his kingdom. Here's what Psalm 110, now applied to Jesus, says about all the enemies of God's kingdom. It says he's defeated them in such a way he's now set them up to be a footstool for the one sit, sitting at his right hand. Like Jesus is propped up and he's sitting in his throne very relaxed. He's sitting in his throne with his feet propped up and what's holding his feet up? All the enemies that he defeated. All the oppositional forces against God and his kingdom. Jesus is sitting over them. Psalm 110 says that the seating of Jesus at God's right hand means that all of God's enemies will not only be defeated, but they have been set up as his footstool, and he is seated at their right hand, at God's right hand, propping his feet up on all the enemies of God. And Jesus is sitting in that seat. Jesus is sitting in that throne right now. That's the position he's in right now. Now, Jesus incarnated, Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus resurrected, and then Jesus ascended. And do you know what happened when Jesus ascended? Where did he go straight to? To the right hand of the Father, and he's been sitting there ever since. And there's all these promises, there's all these guarantees, there's all these assurances that are wrapped up in the ascended Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father. It means he's ruling over the universe. He's in control of it. He's victorious. He's dealt death and all of his friends their final death blow. And here's what it means. King Jesus is at ease right now. King Jesus is not afraid right now. So here's the command from Paul. Set your mind, set your heart, set your attention on the heavenly seat of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Sitting in a place of victory, sitting in a place of rule, sitting in a place of authority, sitting in a place of ease. 
And that may sound ethereal, like, okay, pastor guy, you want me to like think about clouds in this ethereal throne room with this, with this guy Jesus sitting on this throne? What does that mean for my life? That sounds radically impractical. That I'm supposed, is, that, is that Paul's version of escapism? Like, is that what Paul's trying to do? Like, hey, when life gets hard, just imagine the clouds and Jesus up there, it'll help you. Is that what Paul's trying to do? Is he that out of touch with reality? That you actually think that Paul is saying, hey, I know this is really hard, um, but if you really want to experience freedom in Christ, just go into la-la land and just think about a guy on a throne in some cloud somewhere, and that'll help you. Is that what Paul's doing, or is it far more practical, far more powerful than that for us? Because I think Paul, who understood what it means to be a human being that lives by faith, I think Paul understands that I can choose to see every interaction of my life with either earthly lenses on or heavenly lenses on. I can choose to see every interaction from my, from my days and my weeks with an earthly perspective or a heavenly perspective. And in every interaction, I will be tempted and taunted to view that interaction from an earthly perspective. In fact, I would wager with you that every interaction of your day there's something on the table. There's something on the line, and here's what it is. You and I are reacting and acting out of a place in every interaction that's trying to decide who's on the throne here? Who's on the throne of my life here? Who's on the throne of the world right now? Who's ruling all of this? Who's in control here? So when your children are rebelling and you feel like you're losing control and you feel like you're losing the battle, there's that moment of the interaction, right? There's that moment where there's the discord and there's the argument. And then every moment after that, when you leave that, let me tell you the narrative that's going on in your mind. Let me tell you what's going on, what's at stake, way bigger than just that interaction. Is everything going to be okay here? Is this interaction going to determine how the rest of this life goes? Is anyone on the throne of my life or of their life? Is there any hope for this relationship? Or when you have your romantic desires dashed on the rocks of pain and rejection, that rejection is writing a story for you. Yes, you experience the sadness and the heartache of having your romantic desires dashed, but here's what happens after that. You begin thinking, no one's ever going to take care of me. No one's ever going to desire me. No one's ever going to want to be with me. This is going to be how it's going to go for the rest of my life. Or when you experience great loss and sadness and sorrow, the grief becomes too much to bear, and you and I begin to believe that you can't go on another day like this because the chaos of this pain is too great, and the chaos of that pain begins to write a story and a narrative for you about who is on the throne, about how this is going to go, and you begin to think, I don't want to do this every day. I can't face this pain every day, and you start writing stories about what every day is going to be like from that point on. Or when you're in a wrestling match with your sin and the sin seems to be winning and never relenting. And you're either angry that you keep losing the battle or secretly you're so in love with your sin and your addiction that you don't want to admit how much you love losing. That storyline begins to hold the wrestling match in front of your face and say, it will be like this always. This is how it's going to go for you. This is now the, the theme of your life now. This is who you are. And the question that's being asked there is, who's on the throne? 
Is anybody on the throne? Do I have to be on the throne? I don't like the way the throne is being run right now, so maybe I should try to usurp that and get on the throne. All of those questions, all of those interactions are making declarations about who is on the throne. And all of those possibilities that we just listed and thousands more, here's what they do. They command our attention. They cause us to think about it and rethink about it and overthink about it and talk to more people about it, get new perspective on it, and maybe I can come up with a scenario where this storyline ends the way that I want it to end, and maybe this pain will go away if I figure out I should turn left instead of turning right, and so we end up having our attention be set on the circumstances that are going on, and the result, the consequence of having our attention, having our hearts and our minds set on those things is that we are never at rest. Our soul is never at rest. These storylines command our attention and they tell us a story about what it's going to be like and we are not at rest. But Jesus is. <laughs> Did you hear what Paul said? He's on the throne. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. His enemies have been made his footstool. He's not anxious about your storylines. He's not afraid of them, and he certainly isn't threatened by them. Remember, he's propped up with a footstool. He's at ease right now. He's at rest right now. He's always at rest. Since the day he ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, he has been at rest and to set my heart and my head to give my attention to things above means to give my attention to the thing that is most true above, and it's this, Jesus is on the throne. And I'm invited, nay, commanded here to set my attention on that reality. I'm actually invited, commanded to set my attention and see the world, see my life in the story of the world's life through his perspective. That's what, it says, that's what he says in verse three and four. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. It's inviting you to come sit on the lap of Jesus while he's at rest and borrow from his rest. Look at your life and the life of the world through his perspective and then you will be at rest the same way he is. He's ruling over all and I am to set my attention on that. I am seated with him in the heavenly places, Paul tells us. I am to join him there with my attention and to ruminate and to set my desires and set my focus and then set my, the liturgies of my life to help me remember and practice viewing the world from Jesus' throne. And when we do that, it actually gives us a, a very counterintuitive gift. Here's what it does. So you might think that when, we, when Paul or we start talking about, hey, set your minds on things above, that that sounds like escapism. And what that really is is just you know, kind of hitting the, the, like, the ejection seat and I'm supposed to kind of leave my problems behind and go join Jesus on the clouds. That's not what Paul's talking about. Here's what happens when you and I begin to see the world and see my circumstances from Jesus' perspective. When I set my attention there and see him seated at the right hand of the Father, I actually get the courage, get the gift to be present. Here's how that works. Do you know when you set your mind and your heart on earthly things, the circumstances of your life and what's going on, you're never present? Because here's what happens. You're not gifted enough or wise enough or powerful enough to only think about the present tense of your storylines and not run down the road five months or five years for how this is gonna be. So setting your mind on earthly things, focusing on how your life is going right now, always immediately takes you out of the present. 
And it takes you into this future. And guess what, guess what um, the Bible says about the future? It's not real. The future of your imaginations, it's not real. Hasn't happened yet. And we want peace, we want rest in our future. And so we go to this future and we try to imagine how this storyline could work out and what, what steps would I have to take to make it so that, I, so that that future happened or didn't happen. And we try to grab rest from a future that we've imagined. Not possible. But here's what happens when we begin to view the world through a heavenly perspective. When we see Jesus seated at the right hand with his enemies propped up under his feet and he's ruling and he's at rest, we begin to go, oh, I don't have to figure out the future. I don't have to be in charge of all those things. I don't have to navigate this way and make sure I always turn left when I wasn't supposed to turn right and I make sure I have all the right systems in place so that all this works out the way that I want it to. No, when I see Jesus on the throne and he's ruling and he's at rest, guess what I get to do? Just be present here. And what that means is, is guess what you get to do with all the circumstances that you're experiencing right now? You get to feel the weight of them. You get to be sad when things are really sad. You get to be joyful when things are really joyful. You get to be angry when, when you should be angry. You get to feel the weight of all of those things and feel them to their fullest extent, but you can never feel them from the perspective that the king is not on the throne. You can feel them, but you cannot believe that your feelings is what is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne, and he lets you feel the way you, you need to feel. So you, you, a lot of you probably need to go have a really good, long, hard weeping session because there's so much sadness going on, but you've thought that if I really let myself feel about this, I'll get lost. And Jesus is saying, I'm on the throne. You can cry. I'm here with you. Or there's some things that some of you need to get really angry about, like righteously angry about. But you're afraid of anger, and I thought anger was wrong, and I thought that I'm not supposed to feel that. And Jesus is going, no, I'm on the throne. You can get angry. And here's the invitation. To be present with Jesus on the throne means you get to be a fully alive human being. For the first time, maybe. Earthly perspective always takes you out of the present. Heavenly perspective brings you back to the present. This is to have our attention. When we are setting our mind and our heart on things above, not on earthly things, it is the invitation to set our attention on the most heavenly reality there is that Jesus was and is and will always be on the throne. And because he is at ease there, you can be too. You can actually borrow from his rest. You can borrow from his not fearful self. You can actually borrow sitting with him there and seeing his position. You can begin to experience the rest that he is. With all of the unknowns and all of the fears and all of the future casting we do, Jesus is at rest in his heavenly position above all the things that are currently unsettling us. And this is how Paul is encouraging us and admonishing us and drawing our attention to our attention. He's saying, hey, Jesus plus nothing really does equal everything. Jesus plus nothing really is where your freedom is. Do you want to experience that freedom? You need to see him seated at the right hand of the Father. And that will allow you to walk in the present in ultimate freedom. This is the practice to maybe change the rhythms of your life, to set up the liturgies of your life, the practices that you practice in order to reorient your heart and your mind into seeing Jesus where he is, which is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is what Paul means to set your head and your heart and your attention on things above. But maybe that's too painful for you this morning. 
Maybe the idea that Jesus is on the throne of your life outrages you because if he really is on the throne, either A, you don't trust him anymore, or if he's the guy that let the things that have happened to you happen to you, then you don't want him on the throne anymore. And not only is that um, normal and human, it's understandable. In fact, the Bible actually invites you to experiencing how you feel about God being on the throne of your life and experiencing the depth of that emotion and that frustration and that doubt and that anger and that sadness. It actually invites you to feel those things. It actually puts language to them for you. There's a whole book about it. Most of the whole book of Psalms is your guide into how you should be feeling. David was very in touch with his emotions And Paul and the rest of Scripture would say, it's very normal that when you hear that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, for you to have a reaction to that, for you to feel something about that. And you need to know that God can handle your frustration. He included a songbook full of frustrating songs in his Bible. He's inviting you to step into that and be honest with yourself and with him about how you're feeling. But here's what the Bible won't allow. The Bible will allow you to feel what you're feeling and to respond to God and how you're feeling about certain storylines. Here's what the Bible will not allow. You are not allowed to use the storyline of your life as the only evidence when you write a story about God. You're not allowed to use only the evidence from your life when you write a conclusion about who God is and what he's like. You can feel the weight and you need to feel freedom to feel how you feel in response to God being on the throne. The Bible is adamant you may not write a narrative and write a conclusion about God only based on how your life has gone thus far. Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. But he wasn't always there. And the Bible would call our attention, it would call us to set our minds and our hearts on that part of the story too. To what was Jesus doing before he ascended to sit at the Father's right hand. In fact, we're told multiple times that to set our minds and hearts on these heavenly things, it would be equally as important when we're setting our attention on things above to consider Jesus and what he did before he ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them a question. And he says, hey, who do they, like the people out there, who do they say that I am? Jesus' notoriety was growing and he was doing miracles and teachings and thousands were listening to him talk and he said, who, who, what's, what's the buzz? What's the word on the street? What are people tweeting about me? And he says, and he says uh, I want to know. And they respond, the disciples are well, some say you're John the Baptist resurrected, some people are uh, tweeting you and hashtagging you that you're just a prophet and some people are saying maybe you're Elijah. I don't know, what, I don't know all the stuff they're saying. And Jesus goes, that's great. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter uh, steps up and he says very clearly, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the one who all of Israel's hopes and dreams are resting on. You're the guy who's come to make all this right again. You're the one that we believe is the Christ, is the anointed one, is the Messiah. And Jesus affirms and celebrates that confession of Peter. And he says, Peter, You didn't discover that on your own. It was revealed to you by the Father, but we're going to celebrate this, and I'm going to build my rock, build my church on that rock. The rock of that confession that says that I am the Christ and I've come to set things right again. I'm going to build my church on that rock, Peter. 
Peter's feeling great about himself. Like, man, yeah, I, I knew. I knew I had it in me. And I, you know, I'm feeling good about my knowledge of the Christ. And immediately, immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and gets lauded, this is the, the confession that I will build my church on, immediately Jesus starts going, okay, now I need to tell you something else. Very next sentence. I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to die. I've got to start suffering for you. I've got to start suffering to set things right again. And so Jesus is explaining. We're not told exactly what he says about his suffering and his death, but he says, I've got to go do this. And then Peter, <laughs> Peter, remember, he's, he's feeling good, right? He's feeling confident. Listen to what Peter does. The, the, Matthew 16 tells us he rebukes Jesus. Great idea, Pete. He says, he says no, 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 no. You, you will not go suffer for us. That is not a part of this Messiah story. This is not a part of this Christ narrative that's going to happen. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. Bold move, Pete, but he's feeling good, right? He's feeling, he's feeling cocky about everything he says, apparently. And so Jesus has to pull Peter aside, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Far fall from the place he was at a few moments ago. Um, build my church on that rock, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And here's what, here's what Jesus says to Peter. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want you to be thinking heavenly. Just like Paul's saying, I want you to be thinking and setting your attention and setting your hearts and minds on the things of God, not on earthly things, not on the things of man. But listen to what Jesus says in that context. Figure out what he's saying. Follow the logical uh, equation of this, what Jesus is saying. Jesus just told Peter that the most heavenly, godly way of thinking is to think and believe that the Messiah came to suffer. And when you start talking, Pete, that I don't need to suffer and that I don't have to die for you and I don't have to give my life away, you're thinking in human terms. You're thinking in earthly terms. And I'm calling you to set your mind and your heart on things above. And here's what it means to think above is that the Messiah came to die for you. That's heavenly economy stuff. That's the doings of heaven. You want to think heavenly? Think on and sit on and set your attention on the fact that Jesus came to suffer for you. The laying down of the life of the Messiah, the suffering of Jesus for his people is the most heavenly way of thinking, according to Jesus. He just told Peter that. You think I don't need to suffer? Let me correct that, Satan, and tell you that the most heavenly way of thinking is believing that the Messiah has to suffer for you and is willing to do it. Just as much as Paul would call our attention to things above that Christ is on the throne, that's not the only thing the scripture calls our attention to that says is heavenly or things above. Here's what Jesus would say. Set your heart on your suffering Jesus. So if you can't see him this morning at the right hand of the Father because it's too painful, see him suffering for you until it melts you. Let's pray. King Jesus, so many things have our attention. And in the war for our attention, we are gathered here today to set our attention on you, and you have, you have stirred that in us. We only long to set our attention on you because you set your attention on us first. And so suffering, ruling Jesus, grab our hearts and our minds' attention and set them on you until we melt, we pray. May we borrow from the rest that is yours this morning as we sing out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.